I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's most pressing challenges. Today, we're continuing our special mini-series, Mission Critical Cloud. And here's our guest host, Teresa Carlson, Vice President of the Worldwide Public Sector at Amazon Web Services. Today, we're turning our focus to discuss how cloud computing helps the federal government agencies to really think big and look around corners to find new ways to deliver on their mission. I'm joined by Dave Levy, Vice President of our U.S. federal government business here at AWS. Across the public sector, our customers have taken this difficult time and all the related changes and turned them into opportunities to think of and implement new ways to deliver on their missions. Dave, can you talk us through what you're seeing from your perspective? Agencies have continued to use the cloud to drive mission-critical programs on behalf of individuals. One of my favorite examples is from the Defense Logistics Agency. With the help of Credence Management Solutions and AWS Professional Services, migrated five applications almost six weeks ahead of schedule with no interruption to their operations. Switching from the DOD to the government's civilian agencies, the Smithsonian Institution has been hard at work ensuring their collections are available globally by leveraging the cloud. Ray spoke with Darren Burba, Chief Information Officer at Smithsonian Institution, and Effie Kapsalis, a Senior Digital Program Officer at Smithsonian, about their open access initiative, which has changed the way researchers and the public can interact with their collections. Take a listen. A Smithsonian is a pretty huge organization. We have 19 museums, nine research centers, libraries, archives, and a zoo. And we belong to the American public. And part of our strategic plan process included this goal to reach 1 billion people a year with a digital first strategy. A pretty big goal for us as a bricks and mortar complex of museums and and research centers. So with open access, we released 2.8 million 2D and 3D images, close to 175 years of staff-created data about these collections as CC0, which means people can use it for any purpose they want. And we did this both at the individual download level, but as well as through an API and a GitHub repository so people can access it at scale. Do you have any favorite anecdotes or artifacts? Yeah, some of my favorites are these 19th century patent models from the American History Museum. Um, There's a folding chair and a Singer sewing machine in there. I also love these drawings by Robert Ridgway from the Smithsonian Archives. And these are um, scientific drawings of birds. And he's working out color theory in his drawings. And there are little notes about it in the side. So they're really fun to look at. We also have costumes from The Wiz from our African-American History and Culture Museum, including these awesome platform boots, which are scanned in 3D. So you can totally play around with them and make your own characters with these boots. And really appreciate the height of the platform. Oh, they are. They are good. Probably not something I could wear, but I can, you know, imagine it in my head and be happy. (laughs) Darren, from the tech side of things, 2.8 million files, that's a lot of data and a lot of storage. Can you weigh in on some of the challenges and obstacles there were from the tech side and how were you able to overcome them? And could you have ever done this sort of thing without the cloud? It would have been much harder. With open access, we've done a few things that we hadn't done before. And we really wanted to be able to make the TIFF files that we have, which are the highest resolution um, that we could offer. 
Um, and those files can range anywhere from you know 80, 90 megabytes and higher. And so when we were looking at the initial launch number of collections, you know, we were we were looking at approximately half a petabyte worth of storage. And um, you know, being able to serve those up um, from the cloud directly and not having to put that footprint of storage infrastructure in our data center and have to prepare to deal with serving up files of that size, having that cloud option is what really made that something that once we, we kind of had that in, as part of our architecture, we, we kind of saw the light in terms of how we were actually going to pull this off. So procuring all of that infrastructure, building it out to make sure that you could handle peaks and demand and everything else. Did you look at any of the cost advantages? We did. Um, we were looking at what the storage infrastructure would have to be to support this um, in a way that would allow us to support, you know, an unknown demand. And, you know, one of the uh, nice things about the cloud is, you don't have to worry as much about about that scaling because you know the capacity is there when you need it. We were able to make this data available under Amazon Web Services Open Data Initiative, which also brought up the benefit of making the information available to people in a way that uh, they didn't have to copy it to be able to use it. They could access it right where where we put it without having to have the storage on their own to be able to utilize you know whatever amount of data they needed. What have you seen in terms of visitors to your website? So when we first launched the open access, we had a huge spike in, in terms of the number of visitors to our website. February actually is, was the highest month ever in terms of the number of visits with 50% increase in, in new web visitors. So it was a very, very positive response. We've had over a quarter million downloads you know, since, and we're, we're, you know, we're just a couple months into this. I love this initiative. I feel like it's one of the happiest corners of the internet, truly, because not only due to the pandemic, when we're all social distancing and in our homes, but also for people who just don't live in the DC metro area, they now have access to all of this rich, beautiful history and culture. Can you tell us why open access is important and what role it will play in the preservation of culture and who does it really benefit? I think it benefits everyone, really. I mean, it benefits our own staff in terms of making the data readily available for our own computing. Our conservators really find this data set super helpful. They really need to look at other collections around the world and be able to use those examples to preserve our own artifacts. And we're constantly called on from countries via our, our embassies around the world to help local cultural organizations preserve their own things. So being able to share what we have up close is really going to help with that effort. Have you seen any other exciting projects stemming from this data now being publicly available? We've had People reach out from different universities around the world to now assign our data set as a project in their classes. So we learn so much from these encounters. So we're really looking forward to that. Another example is an indie filmmaker has already created a short using our Apollo 11 command module. You know, this is, this is a model that took our 3D team months to make. It includes details like writings that the, the astronauts wrote as little mission notes. So it just really is there for people to build on and imagine new things. Next up, Ray chatted with Joe Foster, the Cloud Computing Program Manager at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, to learn how they're using the cloud to reach new heights. Joe's leadership provided a way for the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center to adopt the cloud at scale. 
Having a unified and streamlined approach to adopting the cloud can yield long-term benefits for any agency. NASA really starts and ends with science. I know everybody likes talking about the astronauts and going to space, but NASA's got four main science disciplines, heliophysics, astrophysics, earth science, and planetary science. And actually, Goddard Space Flight Center has all four science disciplines, in addition to the fact that it is a space flight center. So we actively fly and pilot satellites uh, in orbit. And you may have seen recently with some of the coronavirus, COVID-19, NASA imagery from satellites flown out of Goddard was able to detect decreased emissions over the United States, over China, as the world sort of went into lockdown. So a lot of that analysis came from data that uh, was flown out of Goddard. For the last several years, people had wanted to do cloud, but they felt like there was a barrier to entry. Scientists and engineers and aerospace flight project managers, they didn't want to have to be cloud experts. And a lot of these missions are long lasting over a long period of time. They didn't want to have to go hire their own cloud expertise. And so a, a little over a year and a half ago, uh, my role was created uh, as cloud computing program manager. And my predominant role uh, is to help missions adopt cloud more rapidly. And so uh, I started uh, with, with no plan, no predecessor, um, no idea what I was doing to now we have a, a service with a NASA ATO and authorization to operate. And we've uh, successfully onboarded over 60 projects, uh, for, not just from Goddard, but from all over the agency. What was it like in your first few months there? How were you able to pull a strategy together, get buy-in from your colleagues, execute the plan and deliver on what you set out to do? So I would say for my first probably 90 days or so on the job, I, I literally went door to door, almost like a politician knocking on the door, introducing myself, talking about the cloud, talking about my role, trying to understand who they were, what they were interested in doing, their plans. And as you can imagine, the more and more of these conversations I had, themes started to arise, right? I, I don't want to pay for cloud expertise. It's expensive. Flight projects in particular have a six to 10 year lead time. And so there was a real opportunity there to really accelerate the knowledge and awareness across the center and across the agency. So it's almost like you created a group of consultants that different scientists and projects could reach out to across the agency and pull in that expertise as needed to get started. Yeah, I would say it's the combination of things. You know, I've characterized it like as platform as a service. We've taken that traditional AWS shared responsibility model and we've extended that. And so between that platform as a service approach, extending the shared responsibility model, uh, you know, I'm AWS certified. Virtually everybody on my team is certified. So we came in, we provided that expertise, we get you going in the right direction, and then we sort of move on to the next engagement. Can you tell me more about some of the transformational projects that you're working on or that you were able to migrate to the cloud? For the vast majority of the projects that we've dealt with, most of them didn't want a quote unquote lift and shift. They wanted a new way of thinking about things. They wanted a new way of imagining things. As I mentioned, a lot of NASA projects span multiple years, up to a decade at times, you know, Hubble just recently hit his 30th anniversary in space. So uh, NASA's got a lot of patience uh, when it comes to that regard. And so for the vast majority of projects, um, you know, they wanted to take their time and do it right. Uh, I, I see two areas that are really emerging for NASA going forward that are going to be benefiting from this. Uh, the first on the science side, we've been very heavily investing in data science capability for scientists letting them harness the power of the cloud to do AI and machine learning type projects without having to become cloud experts themselves. 
using the AWS Open Data Registry, the NASA and NOAA joint satellite called GOES, they actually pump via the NOAA Big Data Project a live stream from the GOES fleet of satellites directly into AWS. And so by building an AI and machine learning platform on top of AWS, we're able to both forensically look back at past data that's being pumped into there, as well as try to build models for the future to better predict wildfire outbreaks. Because oftentimes wildfires tend to break out in very austere locations and something like a satellite is often your first indicator of a hotspot that's popping up. There's a lot of other uh, AI machine learning stuff going on with heliophysics right now. The sun affects the entire solar system. And there's a lot about it that we don't know. Everything from how it affects gravity to how it affects space weather. And we don't really have a good idea about how it may affect astronauts in space. And so one of the pillars for better feeling comfortable about deep space exploration is to really better understand the sun and all of its dynamic effects on the solar system. And then on the flip side, on the non-science side, NASA is 61 years old. We've got a giant brick and mortar footprint all over the globe right now. And a lot of that infrastructure is aged. And so one of the real transformational aspects is our worldwide network of ground stations is looking at doing some upgrades. And rather than sinking millions of dollars into hardware refresh at each of these ground stations, uh, they've envisioned a project called Daphne, where they're going to hook up this next generation of antennas and pipe the demodulated signal directly from the antenna into AWS and then process it all with a series of Lambda scripts, so serverless. And they're going to go from millions of dollars at each ground station to potentially processing 41 terabytes a day for one mission for under under $100. There's a big push to go back to the moon via the Artemis program and then eventually from the moon to Mars. With the cost savings from handling our low Earth orbit satellites, we're able to repurpose some of that funding into what we would consider next generation optical comm. These will be available to support Artemis as we return to the moon and potentially all the way out to Mars. NASA's vision is stated as we reach for new heights and reveal the unknown for the benefit of humankind. In your opinion, Joe, how has the cloud helped your team reach for new heights? And broadly, how has it helped the agency dream up bigger science, experiment more and learn more? About six months ago, we created an AI center of excellence to complement the cloud team. And uh, very recently, we announced, due to some of the early successes that we had with doing AI machine learning projects, that we've created a bit of a scholarship fund for early phase AI machine learning research for uh, scientists to get access to resources like SageMaker to get their hands on, to play around, and to start some of that early phase development. So I'm really excited and hopeful for um, what may come of that sort of new scholarship program moving forward. The cloud and the fact that we can get out of hardware investment, we can prioritize our investment in other things. We're not locked into long-term legacy uh, hardware technology that might be obsolescent. It enables us to test faster and enables us to fail faster. It enables us to learn faster. And it's really going to be one of the primary drivers for us moving forward as an agency, I believe. If you want to hear more stories like today's, I hope you'll join us for our first ever Public Sector Summit online. Register today at aws.amazon.com slash ps dash summit dash online. Our next episode wraps up our mini series and we're diving straight into the world of healthcare. Stay tuned for more. 
Thanks to our guest hosts, Teresa Carlson and Dave Levy. And a big thank you to our guests, Joe Foster, Darren Burba, and Effie Capsalis. As always, thank you for tuning in. If you liked today's episode, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll catch you on the next one.